It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 114, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Johnicky Fisher Merritt owns Food Farm with his wife, Annie Dugan, and operates it with his parents, John and Jane Fisher Merritt, and longtime employee, Dave Hanlon. Located in Renshaw, Minnesota, 25 miles southwest of Duluth, Food Farm raises about 13 acres of vegetables and sells them over an extended season by storing crops in their high-tech root cellar. In 2010, they were selected as the Organic Farmers of the Year by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service. Food Farm was started by Jonicky's parents in the late 1980s. Jonicky shares the story of the farm's development in the late 80s and the early 1990s, how they developed a market for local food and CSA in the area, and Jonicky's gradual assumption of responsibility and eventual ownership of the farm. In addition to 200 summer CSA shares and a significant amount of wholesale sales, Food Farm packs about 150 CSA shares all winter long. We dig into Food Farm's amazing root cellar, which combines traditional techniques with modern technology to create a facility that is practical and efficient. Jonicky walks us through the development of the root cellar, the creation of a second-generation version, and the nuts and bolts of how they keep storage crops fresh into March and beyond. Jonicky also explains their wood-heated transplant production system and the steps they've taken to make that energy efficient in a climate where heating bills in March can be much more outrageous than on the average Minnesota vegetable farm. We also delve into Jonicky's involvement with his local non-farming community through the school board and a film festival, and how having something outside the farm, including recently a couple of children, has enriched and balanced Jonicky's life and the life of his family. Because time moves fast, it's worth noting that this episode was recorded in mid-March, it's still cold in Wrenchall here in mid-April, just not as cold as it was then. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Storeitcold.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com Jonicky Fisher Merritt, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Happy to happy to be here. So glad you could join us today. How's the weather up there in just south southwest of Duluth, Minnesota? That's beautiful today. Actually, partly partly sunny. We just got about two inches of snow overnight, so everything's bright, and that's kind of nice this time of year. It's I don't like it when the snow goes away too early because then I can see all the things that I need to do. It's it's nice to keep things covered for an extra couple of weeks here. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Jonike, would you take a couple minutes and kind of give us the lay of the land there at Food Farm in Wrenchall, Minnesota? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, I I grew up on the farm here. Uh, I actually was born about 15 minutes south of here in Holyoke, a different farm that my parents moved to in 1975. Uh, they moved out from Oregon. Uh, because they, they really wanted to farm and they couldn't afford land out there. Um, it was, it was already just getting too expensive. So they, they saved up a little money and they bought a, a 240 acre farm in the middle of the Namaji state forest, uh, for $24,000 and had a, uh, 
couple house on it and outbuildings and they thought they were all set up to kind of have a, a little bit of a you know kind of a hippie commune you know they had a couple other uh friends that moved out with them um from Oregon and they were going to have their their organic farm and uh it it didn't really work out that way as many things don't it, it turned out that that my parents were the only ones that actually wanted to do farm work <laughs> <laughs> and uh so the other ones all kind of moved away and um they were they were left uh you know digging in and and trying to to establish a, a local foods movement and and get the word out about about organic uh in this part of the country which was really just a foreign totally foreign thing at that point uh you know there were not many people growing food up here anymore uh aside from you know beef and dairy cattle and um yeah, so it was it was many years of kind of a, a long slog trying to raise awareness and and at the same time also figure out how to grow vegetables here. I mean, it's a it's a very different climate than than coastal Oregon. So it was um, it was an interesting interesting journey for them. Uh, and part of that journey was was moving to the farm we're at now in 1988. Um, it turned out that that beautiful idyllic spot we had there was was in a frost pocket, uh, and one year they had a a 30 day growing season, and it just became pretty clear that if they wanted to raise vegetables, they were just going to have to have to leave that place, which was it was really hard um, for my folks. I mean, they they really it was a it was a beautiful place. Um, the the original house actually had burned down uh, in 77 just before I was born um and so they rebuilt the house there all recycled materials and when I say recycled materials I mean recycled nails I mean this wow. is this is right down to the the nails and the the lath and everything was was all um recycled just because you know they didn't have any money so anyhow we moved up to this place in in 1988 in Renshaw and um, uh, a big part of the reason was the growing season but also the um, proximity to Duluth they really wanted to do kind of a a UPIC model um, for for marketing vegetables and um, we were our old place was was oh 45 miles or so from Duluth and this the place we're at now is about 25 miles from downtown and uh that still wasn't really wasn't really enough to get people out here it was still just really difficult um we did uh if anybody's familiar with the the booker t watley uh his his ideas it was kind of a uh precursor i guess to csa it was you'd buy sort of memberships in the farm and then you got you know in exchange for that you got to you had the opportunity to come and and do uh, a UPIC uh, situation out on the farm, but boy, it was it was just really tough to do that in the the pre-internet era when you couldn't just at a couple of clicks of a button let people know what was ready and what wasn't. Um, you know, trying to grow a whole variety of of produce for people, but not being able to let them know what was ready, and uh, that that was really difficult. So we started. 
and we started actually, and it was still difficult getting people to drive out here to the farm. Uh, so we started doing um, a modified version where we charged people a little bit more, but they could call an order and then we'd bring stuff into town and drop it off. And we had, you know, a fair number of members. I don't know for sure, but it was probably at least 30, maybe 40 uh, families that were that were doing that on a pretty pretty regular basis, and this would have been uh, early 90s, sometime around that time. I can't remember. It must have been winter of 92, probably. We went down for a meeting at um, uh, Philadelphia Farm, and uh, Dan and Margaret were there from from Common Harvest too, and and they were they were telling people about this new uh, idea of CSA and you know I was a teenager so I thought anything that my parents were doing was was crazy and so I thought it was nuts and nobody ever go for that but you know we came back up here and talked to the folks who'd been buying produce from us and they they were just really excited about it they said well we don't we don't have to call you and you know stuff just shows up and and a lot of them were motivated by the same values that that the csa movement was was promoting it was it wasn't just getting good produce it was it was um supporting family farming and and uh a better relationship with with the land and uh it it really made sense so we had 50 members that first year and then the farm has just kind of grown steadily since then I don't remember how many acres we had in production that first year, but we just kind of bit by bit added a little bit most years uh, since then. Uh, 94 was our first growing season for CSA. And that's when I was uh, uh, just before my senior year of high school. Um, and that that really kind of, uh, it turned the farm into something that was, that my parents really believed in and were, were putting so much time and focus and energy into, but it never, it never paid the family's bills. The farm, you know, it would, it would pay for itself, but it didn't pay for my, my parents labor. So they were always working off the farm. Um, uh, and they still continued to work part-time off the farm in those, the early years, but, um, it really was a, a dramatic change just in that it the farm could could finally start to provide for the family rather than just the other way around and um and it gave me the opportunity to see it as as sort of a viable career path and i always i i enjoyed farm work and um but you know i i don't know without it seeming like a economically viable um enterprise that that it would have caught my attention like it did so and that's something i think that's really interesting about food farm is that you guys are it's not just your folks you came back to the farm and you guys worked in partnership for a long time am i right yeah yep yep so i mean really i was always growing up i was pretty as, as many teenagers are but uh, we really were able to establish a really a pretty good dynamic, even when I was in, you know, earlier on in high school, because I would have ideas about how things should be. And I didn't like the way my, my dad did them or my parents were organizing things. 
and instead of being uh territorial you know they it was it was much they were much more open to my ideas not not that they would carry out my ideas it was much more like oh that that seems like that might work why don't you do it and then you know that just kind of continued on through college and so by the time i graduated there were there were significant parts of the operation that were sort of my thing and um it was it was really hard for me to to give you know it would have been really hard for me to give that up i mean it was i was already so kind of involved in the operation and that you know it had two benefits that it was hard for me to hard for me to get out of it at that point and it was also you know the the farm had developed in a way that made sense to me and um you know i think i it's just the the stage the farm was at in its development was perfect for the stage I was at in my growing up. And that, that worked out really, really well. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the farm as it sits today, how many acres of vegetables you guys growing and, and where are you selling your produce and how is that all situated here in 2017? Yeah. Yep. So we have, um, just over 13 acres we're going to have in production for vegetables this year. And um, then we've got another close to 18 that are in the crop rotation system. We just bought some land across the road here uh, a couple years ago. And so we're, we're getting that into the vegetable, some of it into the vegetable um, program. So normally I, I try to have about 50, 50. So I'm taking, most fields out of production and into cover crop uh, every other year. Um, and we're a little heavy these next couple of years just because um, we've got this additional land to get up to speed. But um, yeah, so 13 acres of vegetables. And uh, that's probably last year our, our sales were probably about 60% CSA. We had a, a really pretty decent growing season last year. And uh, we had a lot of, um, uh, produce in storage from 2015, which is a really good growing season for us. So that that's why our um, normally I would say that our our CSA to wholesale ratio is closer to 70-30, but it was about 60-40 in 2016. Um, and then we we do raise a lot of storage crops. So that's um, uh, close to half of our income actually was from storage vegetables. So we're, we've got a, a root cellar uh, set up, so we're delivering uh, CSA shares until April and uh, delivering to our, our wholesale customers as long as we can. So we're, we're still delivering um, right now, but we're down to just, just a couple things in there for the wholesale folks. And so that, that would be uh, the Whole Foods Co-op in Duluth. They have two locations now, uh, the Duluth Grill, Chester Creek Cafe, uh, Spirit Creek Farm. They make uh, fermented uh, products of kimchi and sauerkraut and ginger carrots, that type of thing, uh, out in Washburn, Wisconsin. And um, uh, a couple of smaller grocery. There's a Mount Royal supermarket in Duluth and a small grocery store in Carleton, um, and Beaner's Coffee Shop uh, in in Duluth also. So those are the main our main wholesale outlets, but that's, that's been really good for us. Um, 
it's been nice to have a, a mix there between the CSA and the wholesale. And is Duluth a pretty food savvy environment? I mean, is this, is this a place where, where people are eating and valuing local foods on a wide scale? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they, there's tons of room for growth, you know, and I hear the the number of CSA shares that are available in Madison, you know, compared with Duluth, it's like, Holy smokes. We've got like percentage wise, there's a long way to go to get there. But, um, you know, it, it, it generally is a, uh, Duluth is, is pretty, um, it's a pretty active town. You know, it's becoming more so in the last several years. And it's real progressive. I mean, in, in some ways, there's there's a lot of outdoor enthusiasts. There's a lot of people who care about um, the environment and, and local food kind of has, has piggybacked on that also. Mm-hmm. And about how many CSA shares are you guys doing now with, with that 13 acres of vegetables? So uh, summer shares were, were almost 200. I, I, I don't want to quite do 200 just for... There's a couple little reasons for it, just the way our uh, planting schedules work and everything. We're just under 200 summer shares, and then um, about 150 winter shares. Uh, and we do, that's kind of a full share equivalent of a winter share. So um, it's more like 180, 190 winter shares if you count um, a half share is one. <laughs> what are you guys putting in the winter shares? Is it is it just storage crops? Yep. So we're not doing any winter growing. So it's just beets, carrots, cabbage, rutabagas, parsnips, onions, winter squash, and potatoes. That is something that your farm is well known for, is the root cellar that you guys have and and your crop storage and, and making that work. And I think, you know, getting those you know, oftentimes getting those carrots into the, into the Duluth food co-op at, you know, into March, um, or even, and again, talking about doing the CSA into April. Yeah. Tell me about your root cellar setup and how, and how your storage crops work. So originally we, uh, you know, we kind of had the idea for the root cellar just because we wanted to extend the season. We, um, we just had this idea that it was, we were better off trying to sell more food to the same families than trying to increase the number of families that we were selling to. And that was just sort of something that we really wanted to to do is just to provide more to the people that, that we were already taking care of. And we had a lot of uh, CSA members at the time complain that they couldn't get their kids to eat vegetables in the winter. <laughs> and we had already done a lot of season extension with greenhouses and um uh you know before really hoop houses were a thing down in holyoke with that tiny short growing season you know my dad was already experimenting with all sorts of cold frames and and other kind of temporary greenhouse structures before that was really at least in in our world was really something that anybody knew about so we'd already kind of done that extending the season as long as really felt practical from a kind of an energy standpoint. And, um, so we decided, well, we'll, we'll, you know, try and build a, a root cellar. My dad had built one way back in the early eighties. That was a, a failure. It just got too cold and everything froze in there. And, um, 
we had, you know, experimented with many different ways of storing produce just in our, for our own use. And then we also, you know, were selling some of it wholesale, um, but we were just storing it in the basement of the house here. It had a, there was an old fruit room. It was like five feet wide, nine feet deep uh, in the corner of the basement. And the previous owner had put a, a uh, dryer vent in through the sill plate of the house as ventilation down there. And what we started doing is just putting a, a little fan in that dryer vent, just a little four inch like computer fan. And we'd plug it in to blow cold air in when it was too warm down there. And uh, it worked great. I mean, we stored, I don't know, I think it was 1,000 pounds of carrots and 1,500 pounds of potatoes down there in that tiny little area. And plus, you know, the other beets and parsnips and that type of thing in smaller quantities. And it just seemed like we should be able to do that on a larger scale. And so that's basically what we did is we, we put up, uh, this was in 2000. We put up, a, it was 24 feet wide and 52 feet deep, and it was basically a basement. And then we put a house above it. My my mom needed an art studio. She's an artist. Um, and it was cheaper just to put up walls and a roof rather than um, building her a separate building as an art studio. So we put up a, a second layer on it, and the root cellar is basically a, a drive-out basement. And, um, so we weren't going downstairs or anything like that. And, you know, it had a, a packing shed on, on the end and big doors so we could get in and out easily. And, um, that actually was really helped with the transition for me coming back after college because I graduated in 99. We built that the following summer and that the extra income from that really, uh, enabled the farm to, to sort of absorb a, an extra an extra salary for a longer period of the season. So, um, yeah, so we used that really successfully for um, many years, and then in 2015 we added on to that. Um, that that originally that original building didn't have any refrigeration at all, and we had really really good luck with that. Um, but we could kind of see the writing on the wall climate wise and knew that our um the ability to get that structure cold enough before we harvested was becoming um a little dicey uh we had had one year early on where we had it warm up in december and um uh carrots especially were all wanting to sprout on us and so we actually had to pull everything out of storage rewash it just to you know knock the little root hairs and sprouts off and then we put it back into storage that year and that was tons of work and we were always pushing till the last minute to harvest just before freeze up um because we had to make sure that 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 building is going to stay cool enough and the bigger we got the less uh practical that was and and the more risky it was to kind of wait until second week in November or later to harvest when that's, you know, we often would have freeze up and it'll happen within a couple of days. Well, I remember talking to you shortly after I bought my, my FMC Scott Viner root harvester and, and you were talking about this, this last minute harvest that you guys were doing in the, you know, in, yeah. in early November. And I was thinking, you know, you guys are 
a long ways north of where I was farming, just south of the Minnesota state line. And you were starting your carrot harvest after my goal had been to get everything out of the field because I was worried about what the weather was going to do. So I can't imagine how yeah. stressful that must have been for you guys. Yeah, it was it was really stressful. It was really stressful. Yep. Yeah, because, of course, you know, at any moment something can break. And if you only got a, a couple days window there, it, it was, yeah, it, it made us awful nervous. And, of course, if you push it on the other end, then you have the risk of uh, crops just not storing like they should. And, you know, so this new building we put up uh, has refrigeration in it, and it was just in time. I mean, the, the fall of 2015, the fall of 2016, I, I don't know what we would have done without refrigeration. I mean. It, it, you know, it, in order to cool that that old building down, you really have to have quite a few nights in the you know low to mid twenties to cool that mass of concrete down from you know fifty degrees or so. It gets up to a peak of close to sixty in the summer, but you know starting to cool it down in in September and October. But you got to have some pretty cold nights to cool it down below forty. And we didn't have that. I mean, it was barely below freezing all the way until early December this year. So uh, it's sort of, you know, it at any kind of size, I think for us anyway, it was pretty much a necessity to have that refrigeration now, which I I don't like. I mean, it, it feels crazy to have six months of winter up here and you're still paying for electricity to cool things down. <laughs> yeah. But. Well, I yeah. think some, I mean, some of that has to do with just the, I mean, that's the basic thermodynamics of of a root cellar, right? Is that you're down in the earth. I mean, the earth is cooler than everything else in the summertime, but it's it's warmer than the air temperature and and how fast it's going to cool down is going to lag behind what's happening up above the soil. Right, exactly. Yep. Yep. You know, but you know, for 15 years it worked really pretty well. I mean, because up up here, you know, we'll often have nights uh, let's see i think the the coldest the earliest i remember it when we were doing storage crops was i think we had like 17 degrees or something for our first frost in september and that was mid-september i mean so that that can happen that that cools off the the soil quite a bit then that has two advantages it gives us more time to cool the root cellar down but then the crop that we're putting in storage is already cold. You know, when you're pulling carrots out of ground with, you know, a quarter of an inch of ice crust on the top, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty much there where you need them <laughs> to store long-term. Right. So you're putting this huge amount of thermal mass into this cooler that's already cold. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can stand a little warm up if you've already got it you know, stable at a low temperature. Yeah. But the way things have been the last couple of years with those warm temperatures, then you're getting a double whammy because you're not being able to pump the cold air into the root cellar to get it cooled down. And you're also not being able to put in really cold roots because it just hasn't right. gotten that cold. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so our, our paranoia sort of paid off there for sure in the last couple of years with, with adding that. So the, I don't know if you, you've, you've seen kind of some of the design of what we added on, I think a little bit, right? A little bit. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I actually visited the farm, what it's been six years ago this summer that, that it, my, my now wife, Angie and I came up and, and 
you made me a smashed egg sandwich, which I had never had before, but I guess it's kind of like this yeah, Midwest right. staple. So, um, so thank you for that. And, and showed us around <laughs> and it was really interesting to me how you guys had the storage set up in that original root cellar. And, and I, I don't know if this is what you did in the new one, but in that, in that old one, you guys were actually storing things in bins that were built into the structure. They were, you know, you'd have like, maybe you can describe it better than I can, but it, it wasn't, I've always thought of you carry boxes into the root cellar, but you guys were actually putting the roots into structures that were already there. Right. Yeah. That's how we did potatoes. We, we did that originally with carrots also. So, um, I don't know. It's hard to describe in a visual or in a, uh, not a visual medium, but basically we had, uh, bins set up that were modular. So we'd have one row along the back that we could build up from the ground with pieces of plywood that were a foot tall. So we could, we could have, we'd have a bin that was roughly a foot and a half deep, three feet wide. And then we'd slide down a, a plywood bin front on that that was about a foot tall and we'd dump potatoes in and then we'd slide the next one down we'd dump up till it was two feet tall and you just keep going up until we we had them a, a little over six feet tall and that allowed us to store a lot of produce in a really small space because there's no there's no wasted space it's just packed uh you know six feet high and and however big the, the structure was and that that worked really well for us um uh, especially for potatoes, because the storage, ideal storage temp for potatoes is, you know, more or less the ideal storage temp that the earth is around here. So it kept them right around, you know, 40 to 45 degrees. And that worked really slick. It, it was a lot of work pulling them out again, because you'd have to, you'd have a, uh, we had a little bucket hanger on the front of that plywood bin, and then you got to kind of reach in and pull them all out, put them in buckets, carry them to the scale to dump into whatever box or container you're putting them in. So it was, it was a lot of handling, but it was really, really space efficient. And, and they stored really well. I mean, we just, we just had great storage, especially on potatoes. We did the same thing with carrots and that originally, and that really caused problems because the carrots were constantly in contact with that, that 45 degree earth temperature coming in and um, no matter how cold we got the air temperature, the carrots were always warmer than that because they were right against that, that warmer mass of concrete. And um, so we, we fairly quickly learned after I think probably two years of doing it the other way that we needed a, a bin with airspace around it. So we had these, these uh, pallet bins made up that were, that fit perfectly in the space and then the, the space where the skids were and then the, uh, had an air gap and then the space in between bins, we were able to, to circulate air around those and keep it cold enough. That original building we had, even though it was one building, we had three separate temperature zones there. So we had where the, the carrots and parsnips and beets, that type of thing were stored. You know, we were able to blow cold air in all winter and keep that right just at freezing or just above. And then in the, the potato area, we had ventilation in there also, but we just didn't run it nearly as much. And so we were able to keep that in the 40 degree range. And then uh, we also stored winter squash uh, in there. And that was, um, we actually had 
to provide a little bit of supplemental heat to keep it right around 50, but it was pretty minimal. And what were you using for controlling those temperatures? Obviously, you weren't going in and switching fans on and off in there yourselves. No, we we had a, a company here in Duluth called Conservation Technologies that, that we worked with that was really helpful. They kind of came up with this digital control box that they programmed with us that had temp sensors outside and then one in each of the three rooms. And it would turn that turn those ventilation fans on when it was colder outside than it was inside and it was too warm inside. And then if the, you know, if the sun comes up and it gets warm outside, it would shut that off. Or if the temperature got to the right uh, level on the inside, it would shut off. And it would also control the, that little heater for the squash room too. So it was really slick. It, it worked really, really well. Uh, and it, again, our timing for building the new thing came along just perfectly because that, you know, but at that point it was 15 years old and, and that kind of equipment tends to have some sort of a life cycle. And uh, it was at the end, it was, it was pretty buggy the last year. I had to kind of reset it half a dozen times to get it to work and then it doesn't work at all anymore. So, <laughs> but it, it, it really, it was, it was fairly simple and uh, really served a purpose well. And, and the amount of electricity we used was, you know, really minimal. We probably used as much in the last two years as we did in the 15 years before that. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a huge difference. So tell me what changes you made when you guys built this new root cellar and, and was it, was it a new root cellar? Or was this an expansion of what you already had? We, we expanded onto it. We, we added on to the, to the side of it. Um, so we, we debated putting it somewhere else because we, we didn't have a lot of room where we were at. Um, and so it made the, the expansion a little tricky from a design standpoint, but, um, but we decided, uh, you know, concrete and wheels are like the best inventions ever. And to have everything on one level, all connected, just seemed like a huge efficiency benefit to us. So instead of building, you know, abandoning the old one completely and building a larger structure somewhere else, we wanted to take advantage of what we already had. Um, so we added on to the side of it, expanded the pack shed uh, area quite a bit. So we now have room to, to actually wash, uh, set up our barrel washer and, and bin dumper and conveyors and stuff in the winter. Um, and then, and then we added on, so the, the new actual root cellar part, the storage part is 36 by 36. And then it's got a 12 foot sidewall and the ceiling height at the peak is 18 feet. We used, uh, sit panels for the roof structure as well as the divider walls on the inside. Yeah. Those structural insulated panels, right? Right. Yep. So it's basically the the roof is a, a 12 inches of foam with OSB uh, adhere glued to either side of it. So it's just a solid piece of foam, basically. And so that means in, in on the inside, we have an 18 foot ceiling height in the middle. So I can stack the we use the uh, macro bin, the shuttle bins. Which they're probably what, 33 inches high or something in a regular pallet size, 40 by 48. Right. And we can stack five of them high in the middle of the building 
and four high along the 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 walls um, so it's that's allowed us to have just so much more space it really it's really great and so half of that new part well a little over half is refrigerated and so the the design difference there is since we've got or since that's a refrigerated space we insulated under the floor and we insulated the walls also i mean it's still earth sheltered but we wanted to we needed some insulation otherwise we'd just be constantly using electricity to take heat out of the earth which didn't make a lot of sense um, so we still have the benefit of the earth sheltering because it, it is cooler in the summer it's really easy to keep it cool in the summer and it doesn't take any heat at all in the winter um, uh, but we we did insulate it to buffer it from the, the earth temperature the the back room all the way in back is where we store potatoes though and that doesn't have it's just like the old one we have no artificial refrigeration we use uh that ventilation just regular fan ventilation with with ductwork to keep the temperature where it needs to be and um we don't store in the that same that same old plywood bin system though because we can't reach that high right <laughs> <laughs> so we also we use the we use the shuttle bins for that too okay. and in so. your refrigerated space are you still pumping cold air into that from outside as well when you can I'm I'm not, and part of the reason for that is just I haven't taken the time to do it. The system, the computer box that we had for the old in the old uh, setup, uh, they don't make that anymore, and it's super clunky anyway. From a modern standpoint, it was an old DOS-based programming thing that you can't even really use it anymore, um, and they don't make them. So I'd have to figure out something else and I haven't done that. It has to be a little more complicated because I want to make sure it doesn't interfere with the um, refrigeration. And so, uh, you know, I just have to make sure that it would turn the refrigeration off when that system is going. So it's, it's a little more complicated and I haven't gotten around to it. It would totally work and it would save me money on a, on a warm winter, especially because the refrigeration runs all winter. So anyhow, but I just, I haven't gotten around to doing that and doing all the duct work and everything else. The other advantage of the refrigeration actually is that it does keep the, um, the humidity is higher with the, the refrigeration because, you know, 10 degree air or 10 below air in the winter is really dry. So when you put that into an environment where it's being heated up basically to, to freezing, it ends up lowering your humidity quite a bit which isn't um that's not a huge issue for us we we store everything in plastic so we have those those bins have plastic in them or around them depending on what it is and so humidity the air humidity isn't isn't as critical as it would be if they were just in open bins but it's still nice to have a little bit higher humidity in there. So back with your original root cellar system, you were washing all of your produce before it went in to storage, and then you were just taking it out, boxing it up, and shipping it. Are you guys still storing everything clean? No, most uh, partly because we don't have time, and partly because it's nicer to store things dirty later in the season. So early season, that that always worked great. I mean, until 
late January, really, we didn't have any issues with storage quality. I mean, it, it really worked good. But um, at that point, we were delivering until March with the winter shares instead of April. And often the February and March, like the carrots and parsnips and the rutabagas to a certain extent would start to sprout a little bit. And then it's just, a, you know, then you got all these judgment calls to make about, you know, what's too many sprouts and is this something we have to deal with or is it okay just to send it, you know, and, and um, it's much nicer to take stuff out of storage. If it has happened to sprout a little bit, you go through the washing process and it knocks all that stuff up and off and it looks, looks nice. So the other piece of it is we just don't have time to wash everything going into storage. And so we, we still wash all the potatoes going in. Um, but we don't, we wash probably a fourth of the carrots and then just as uh, enough of parsnips and rutabagas and beets to get us through. I don't, I don't like to wash until beginning of January. It's just nice to, our, our deliveries are big enough and take enough time around the holiday season that it's nice just to take a break from the washing into things until early January. So that's what I shoot for is having enough supply that's all clean that we don't have to really get that stuff fired up until January. By that time, things have, you know, our supply has reduced a little bit and there's a little more wiggle room to move stuff around. So I can, um, early in the season, I just leave the barrel washer and all the equipment outside. I mean, it's under, it's under, it's in a open shed that's covered, but um, it's not taking up valuable heated real estate. And so then once things are cleaned out a little bit, I bring all that in and get it set up in January. With that, Jonike, I think this is a good spot for us to stop, take a break, get a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Jonike Fisher-Merritt from Food Farm in Renshaw, Minnesota. Okay. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Storic Colds Coolbot. Way back in 2000, the year I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food clock complained that the lettuce from local producers lasted for days in her cooler while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. What's that about 2,000 miles fresher? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler at that time. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have to get your produce cold. The difference between then and now is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot controller and a window air conditioning unit saving over 80% in upfront costs with ongoing significant savings on monthly electricity bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Storeitcold.com Perennial support for the podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractors. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. 
And we're back with Johnicky Fisher Merritt from Food Farm, way, way up north in Renshaw, Minnesota, just south of Duluth. So, Johnicky, just to to switch to the other end of the season to where we are now. I mean, yeah, you guys, I mean, you're you're way up there, and you talked about how cold it can get. You know, you were talking about 17 degrees in September. It must stay really cold up there in the spring as well. And I remember when when I came up and visited your farm, how much you guys were doing to make sure that you were really making that transplant system efficient. Because if you were just pumping propane up there, I think you guys would be spending a whale of a lot of money on that. Yeah, right. We don't we actually don't use any propane right now. Uh, I did finally just buy a greenhouse heater for our, our transplant greenhouse, but I haven't put it in yet. So the last, the last three nights of, of being below zero up here, uh, I was getting up in the middle of the night um, to put wood on the fire. We have just a, an old wood furnace in there and it, it works really well. Uh, it's just, I don't like getting up in the middle of the night. And up till this year, it's something that my dad, that's one of the things that he has <laughs> continued to do. <laughs> and he uh, doesn't want to do it anymore, which, makes sense uh he's always had the advantage on me that that uh his house we both live on the farm here and his house is probably oh 50 feet closer to the greenhouse <laughs> <laughs> so that's been that's been my excuse for being like oh yeah you should keep doing that because you're you know 16 steps closer <laughs> but um that he also falls back asleep really easily. And once I'm up, I can't, I can't turn my brain off usually. So that's been his deal, but I, I did buy a propane uh, boiler. We'll continue to use the wood, um, but I'll just, you know, I'll just stack it full at night and then have the propane kick on in the middle of the night if it needs to. With that wood furnace, is that a, are you using a boiler or is that just something that's where you've got essentially a wood stove sitting in the greenhouse? Or are you pumping yeah, water it's around? Just, it's basically just a wood stove. I mean, it's a wood furnace. It's like a if you go to Fleet Farm or whatever, they have the add-on wood wood furnaces. It's one of those, you know. It it's uh, we got it off of Craigslist or out of the the newspaper used for a couple hundred bucks, you know. And um, that's what we have in the transplant greenhouse. We have two, one at each end of our big hoop house and one in the smaller hoop house. Well, that's a lot of fires to stoke in the middle of the night. It is. I mean, the, we don't plant in the ground in the hoop houses until um, third week in April, but still we can have some cold weather. So yeah, if it's if it's really cold, it can be a lot of work. Um, usually we only plant in one of those real early on. So it's, it, it would be very rare to have to do four fires a night but uh, it does happen from time to time. <laughs> what other steps have you taken in your transplant house to for energy efficiency? Yeah, so uh, the the transplant house is a it's a thirty by sixty um, kind of I don't know how you describe it. It's like a commercial truss style greenhouse with gutters on it. We got it used from from a neighbor of ours. Uh, it seemed like a good deal, and it. You know, it was one of those, it didn't cost money. It just cost a lot of time, <laughs> but, um, it, but it's a, it's a really nice structure cause it's, it's real tall. It's got eight foot sidewalls and, and it, it does work really well. And then we have behind that, we have a, 
a 20 by 30 uh, potting shed connected to it that's totally open. You know, it's it's only three sides, so the, the front side is completely open to the greenhouse. Um, but the first bay, the first 12-foot bay of that uh, greenhouse, we have a, a curtain we can draw across that's eight, at eight feet, and then we have one we drop down horizontally. So it's got a, it's, it, we're able to, for the early season, all we have to heat is the shed part, which is a nice insulated building, and then out 12 feet into that greenhouse structure, um, that, that extra plastic layer holds a lot of that heat in close. And that works really well because, you know, at this early point in the season, we don't have that many transplants. It's enough to fit in that, that 12 by 30 foot wide section. And then later on, as the season progresses, then we'll, we'll start, uh, once the onions are up and nice and we have more, more transplants to keep warm, we'll move the onions out to the, the section that's not heated as well. Um, cause they can handle getting fairly cold overnight and not having a fire right on them. Uh, and then we'll move the brassicas out there once we have tomatoes potted up into to larger pots and need the room and, and, then towards mid-May, you know, then it's just a, a sea of tomatoes and peppers and, and the second and third uh, brassica plantings will all be out there. And we'll just have the whole thing opened up. And with that, that plastic that you can draw across the top at the eight-foot level, is that something that you're pulling back during the day to maximize light transmission? Right, yep, unless it's really cold. Like yesterday, it was kind of breezy and it only got up to, I don't know, 12 degrees or something. And so I just left it closed all day um, because we weren't getting that much light anyway. And, um, and the onions have only like onions are all that we have out there right now. And they're, they're up half an inch or so. So it's not really going to affect them that much, but yeah, generally we'll, we'll pull that, that cover back uh, in the morning and then close it in the evening. And uh, Dave and my dad rigged up a, a pretty neat little, system for that the the axle off of an old uh, self-propelled lawnmower that's connected to a a pipe that that rolls up the cord that pulls that back and then you can uh, chuck a half inch drill into the the input side of that the axle shaft and works pretty slick to open and close that thing without a whole lot of work I mean, you can open and close it real really fast so that's the kind of thing that makes, you know, when you've got a manual system like that, having something that makes the work just a little bit easier, a little bit more, even if it's not fully automated, at least semi-automated, I think it make a real difference in how, just how much of a pain in the ass it feels like it is to go out and do it. Oh yeah. Right. Especially because, you know, it's one thing if you're out in the greenhouse all day, but I'm, I'm almost never out there. It's not really my it's not my department. And so Dave is out there most of the day on days he's here, but he's, he's only here three days a week at this point in the season and nobody else is really here. So for me to be going out and opening and closing and all that stuff just kind of feels like a hassle and, and a distraction from the things that I'm normally trying to focus on. So all those little things out there in the greenhouse really, really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Dave. That's you, you mentioned his name a couple of times here talking about the greenhouse. Who is that? Yeah, so uh, his name is Dave Hanlon. He lives in Duluth, uh, and he's worked for us. This is his 25th season on the farm here. And um, he's just really, you know, one of a kind, kind of indispensable 
here on the farm and um he runs most of our greenhouse production and then we call him miscellaneous man a little bit because he he takes on all the the smaller crops that are kind of more finicky and when i say smaller crops i mean most of the things that end up in the csa box that people actually like <laughs> <laughs> you know he he does the snap peas and green beans and the lettuce mix and the herbs the basil and cilantro and and um all those crops are are things that dave manages and then i manage the the bigger field crops so you know carrots potatoes winter squash um the brassicas once they're in the field he he does the transplant production for the most part but i i handle them once they're in the field and field work and all that type of thing but he's He's handling all the the other really, you know, complex and uh, uh, time-consuming aspects of running a CSA that come with, you know, being a, a really diverse farm. Doing what we do takes a lot of management, and being able to, to divide up those, those management tasks efficiently and um, uh, in a way that, that makes sense and kind of place everybody's skills is really it's been really important for us so you know between him and myself and my dad we were it took us a couple of years to figure it out after i got out of college and you know try to figure out who's doing what and then so people aren't uh fighting against each other's systems and stepping on each other's toes and all that stuff but boy we it, once we figured it out it just worked really really well and not having my dad he's he's cut back quite a bit here um but dave and i have kind of between the two of us picked up most of those duties and then other ones we try and figure out how to how to push down on on employees as best we can but it's been a really it's been a really great partnership i would think it must have been a really interesting dynamic to go from having dave be working for john to now really having him working for you mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it, it's it has been um yeah it's it's been it's been really interesting um dave and i are very different in the way that we approach uh managing crops and how we how we come at solving problems and he is he is much more kind of gut driven and instinct driven and i'm much more i want to experiment with things and write them down and and get the data on it sort of and um so that's been uh, that's caused friction from time to time because it's really hard to have a discussion with somebody when the the things that you use to arrive at your decision are just completely different for each of you um you know, it's when I say, well, it's 50% faster and Dave says, well, it feels like it's slower. I mean, where do you go from there? Right. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's really, I, I think there's a lot to be said for having those. Um, if, if you can, if you realize uh, where the other person is coming from, you can, I don't know how to put this exactly. 
I think I think a farm really benefits from having a diversity of of perspectives, even when that comes to decision making and how to approach problems. And um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. So you've talked about your role on the farm and, and Dave's role on the farm. And, and you've talked a little bit about your dad, John, is your mom involved in the farm? She is, she still does, um, the, uh, quite a bit of the bookkeeping. Um, so I, I do financial management and, and everything, but she, um, you know, enters checks, balances the checkbook, uh, takes care of kind of the, the basic, some of the basic office work. And the amount of time she spend varies between, I don't know, five hours a week and maybe 20 at the most, I think. Um, but she used to, when I first bought the farm, she was still kind of managing the pack shed and uh, on delivery days. Um, and she doesn't do that anymore. Uh, but she still does, does a lot of the office work. Yep. And your wife, Annie, is she involved in the farm operation? Uh, not, she's not officially involved. I mean, any spouse who lives on a farm, um, (laughs) is involved whether, whether they want to or not, you know, it's just, it, it's a, and that's, I think a difficult dynamic, just that the farm sort of is all consuming. It's really hard for it not to be. And, and, you know, you can, you can do your best at, at setting boundaries and valuing family time and and everything but when when you work uh where you live it's difficult to to uh have a lot of separation there so and she also does i mean uh, like spouses do with most jobs as a sounding board for things that are ideas you're having and and the direction you want to see things go it's just much more of a focus because she's right here and, um, living on the farm. So that's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little more personal. I, I would love for her to be, to be more involved just because things that she is good at, uh, I'm, are things that I either don't want to do or am not really as good at. Um, and we, but at the same time, it's also really nice, um, to have her working off the farm, getting us involved in things that normally um, I wouldn't be, or we wouldn't be if, if she wasn't um, working in town. Uh, you know, there's, that brings a lot to, to what we do, having that, that connection. So that community connection. And then you've brought a couple of kids onto the farm recently as well. Yeah. Yep. So we have a, a, two and a half year old and a newborn who's just born just over a month ago. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's been, that's been interesting. It's been really fun actually. I mean, it, it, it has been, uh, you kind of hate to say it, but it, it's really, it's been kind of nice for Annie and I to have a project together <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, we, before we had kids, it was, we both would just the the amount of work we were doing just kept ratcheting up i mean we're both we're both kind of ambitious and and competitive and so when one of us was working late you know the other one would figure well i 
I might as well work late because Annie's not home yet. And then Annie wouldn't like getting home and having the house cold and dark and hang around by herself. And so she would work late if I was working late. And, it, you know, after a while, you sort of just keep ratcheting things up to a level that, you know, we still got along great and everything, but it's, we were doing less together. And, um, you know, having kids has, has made us, um, we do way more together. And I think we're, we're really, we're much happier for it just because, uh, you know, it feels like we're a family now. And, and we were sort of, instead of being a couple, we were sort of turning into roommates after a while. So anyway, that, that's been, that's been really great. And we're, I've, I've never been much of a baby person, but I like kids and it turns out that I was fine with babies as long as they're mine. <laughs> <laughs> it does make a difference, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. have yeah. you changed? I mean, you talked a little bit about, about, you know, you and Annie being involved in the same project now and how that's kind of brought you guys closer together. Has it, has having kids changed how you relate to the farm? It is. I mean, it's made me less motivated. <laughs> I I just, you know, it's, it's really hard now to make myself work as late as I used to and work as hard as I used to just because I, it's, it's, uh, it's not what I, it's not the thing that I care the most about anymore you know it's it's hard to be excited about working on the weekend and before it was you know i just i love doing farm work i just there's there's nothing ever that i've done that's been as kind of exciting to me just the um constantly being able to to picture what the field that i'm working on is going to look like in a few weeks or a few months or the how much the farm can improve if I just put that extra hour in uh, and also a certain, this, the level of paranoia that I always have about, well, if I don't get this done and it rains for three days, this is, this field is going to be a nightmare. You know, um, that, uh, that has been tempered a little bit in probably a really, a really good way because um, you know, another another five or ten years of that and it probably would have been pretty ugly even though it wasn't it hadn't gotten to a bad place yet but i i could have seen that happening <laughs> how many employees do you guys have on the farm you mentioned that you're pushing some responsibilities delegating those downwards uh, i'm trying i'm trying to i'm i'm trying to get better about that um and um part of what i'm Part of what I'm learning and trying to be more disciplined about, although I haven't had a lot of success doing this, but part of what I really need to do is, is stop changing things. Um, you know, I'm always trying to push and, and refine systems and make things better. And that's really good. But at a certain point, it's also nice to have a sort of inefficient system that you just do every year because then you can describe that system to other people and they, they can just do it. And it doesn't matter if it's not as perfect as it could be, but if there's a system there and you know, it works and you just do the same damn thing every year, <laughs> it, there's a benefit to that. And I, I've always had a really hard time with that. 
and that's part of the reason that I became involved in the farm is I just didn't, I thought some of the things that my parents were doing were inefficient and I was always trying to, to fix that stuff. And I think at a certain point I need to stop fixing some things um, just so that I don't have to be the one doing them all the time. So anyway, that, that's something that I'm working on. But as far as number of employees last year, we had 12 employees. Uh, they were a lot of them were part-time and for part of the season. And um, this year I've kind of gone away from, from having very much part-time help at all. And I think I'll just have, if I can count real quick, I think I'll have six, maybe seven this year. And are there mm-hmm. other people on the farm besides Dave who've come back for multiple years? This year we've got our kind of crew manager person. um, This will be her third year on the farm, but she didn't work for me last year. So she worked full-time three years ago, part-time two years ago. She didn't work at all last year and now she'll be full-time again. And um, then my mom, obviously, and then uh, my sister-in-law, Terry, um, my, my brother's wife, has worked with us. She started as an intern back in, boy, her first year must have been probably 2002, maybe. Might have been 2003, but I think probably 2002. And then she's worked on and off. She worked for several years, and then they had their first kid 10 years ago. And so she was home with him, and then she was working part-time, and then she was started driving our delivery van. My dad always used to do all the the deliveries, all the delivery routes, both CSA and wholesale. So that was four days a week. Uh, but then I brought Terry on to start doing that. And so she was just, just the delivery driver. She wasn't working on the farm, but then once their younger daughter is old enough to start kindergarten, now she's, she's back working full time on the farm here again. So I don't know how many years in all she's worked here, but it's, you know, over 10 probably if you, if you count all the part-time and, yeah. <laughs> here and there. So, I mean, and you know, having people like that is just such a huge asset for the farm because they know the drill and they're kind of, you know, they show up and they, the, the season changes so fast here. I mean, I, I assume it does everywhere, but our season is so short that, you know, you go from April to May and things are, you're doing completely different things and May to June is totally different than July. And it, it just all changes so fast. So to have those people who can come back and at least sort of, you know, they're, they aren't as invested in it as I am. And they're maybe not projecting out what's going to happen next week, but they're used to it and they're sort of ready for that switch to happen every time it does. And that's, that's really just that mental preparedness is, is really huge. Um, and then, you know, as far as uh, experienced help, we also um, have a, a farm member, uh, Patricia Clure, who's, she's been here on the farm for at least five years now. I think 2012 was the first year she started coming out regularly. And she comes out at least two days a week and is, you know, again, just, uh, a huge help. And she comes out year round. I mean, she's here doing all the winter deliveries. She's here today. She's, she'll be helping in the greenhouse. Um, and, uh, you know, having people like that who are kind of engaged and thoughtful and, and, um, 
and really buy into the vision are awesome. Uh, and Patricia also, she and another farm member helped me buy that land across the road. They were, uh, they were instrumental in kind of making that financially viable. So, yep, it, it's a, it's a pretty, a pretty amazing support group that's, that surrounds this farm and, and allows it all to happen. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty fun when, when we're all in it together and firing on all cylinders and, and the weather behaves. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, I know you guys say right on your website, it's, you know, it's food farm rooted in community since 1975. And, and that seems to be a, doesn't seem to be, that's clearly a very important value for you guys. And you're pretty involved in your community outwards as well as having people be involved in the farm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I joined the Wrenchall school board. I mean, I'm on kind of various committees and stuff, but my kind of most formal community involvement thing out here is, is being on the school board. And I've, I've done that since 2004. Uh, was, um, when I got on the, the board and that's been really interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't really intend to do it. It's uh, the, you know, small towns, we, you're always short on people who are willing to volunteer to do things. And there were three open seats on the board and only one person running and so uh, another guy I was in high school with who was uh, two, three years older than me and I, we just decided, well, we'll, we'll do it. And so we were, we were write-in candidates, which um, for someone with a weird name like me is something that, you know, people had to spell it right. <laughs> <laughs> so to get, to get a couple hundred people to, to actually write your name correctly on the ballot was, <laughs> was kind of fun. <laughs> no kidding. I, um, I misspell your name, you yeah. know, at least two times out of three. So. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so we joined in 2004 and I thought, well, I'll be on for one four year term and you know, that's, that's all the time I really want to put into it, but I really, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, there are hard times of course, when you've got ornery employee issues or, um, uh, parents who are unhappy or, you know, uh, financial difficulties and stuff like that. We're a really small district. I mean, it's, we're at, uh, just under 350 kids, K through 12, uh, one building. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's made me be involved in a way that I, I wouldn't, uh, that I might intend to be, you know, I might intend to volunteer and stuff like that, but you know, my, I just get too wrapped up in farm stuff. And I, unless I've got meeting dates and people reminding me that I have to be there, I probably wouldn't do it. I would just get too busy. And instead I'm, I'm kind of obligated and committed to it. And, uh, and that really, I've really valued, you know, being active in, in the, the school, you know, even though I didn't have any kids, you know, kids were a long way off at that point. Um, and I, I think that's been, helpful in some ways for the board is actually to have a board member who doesn't have any kids in school. And, um, you know, it's made it a little bit easier to kind of maybe get past, um, some of the tough decisions that are made and be a little bit, a little bit more neutral about it. Makes sense. And you you talk about being busy with 
the farm, but you've also got this other project that you do this free range film festival every in, the, you know, which you plop down in the middle of the growing season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last week in July, it's a nice relaxing time here, <laughs> here in the country. <laughs> um, it, yeah. So we started that in 2003, 2004, I think maybe it was the first year for that too, actually. That was a big year. Anyway, so I graduated from college in 99. Annie moved up here after she graduated, lived in Duluth for a year or so. Then she got a job at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis for a year or so. And then when I wasn't with her in Duluth, I was living in a a little uh, loft. We'll call it a loft apartment. So it was just a room in the machine shed. (laughs) (laughs) And... Uh, so Annie didn't really like that a whole lot when she was up here visiting. So, um, I had heard from my old bus driver that there's this kind of neat place about a mile away from here that was going to be for sale. And I had always big, beautiful old barn. And I was always curious about that barn. And so I, you know, Annie was up for the weekend and we sort of looked at it mostly just to snoop around a little bit. And just totally fell in love with it. I mean, it was such an amazing space. Uh, it's 36 by 72, and just the hayloft is is 30 feet uh, from the floor to the ceiling. So, for for this part of the country, that's it's pretty big. Maybe not lengthwise, but heightwise, it was pretty substantial. And then the the main floor has 10 foot ceilings. So it's all you know, it's not like an old barn. You're you're kind of crouching down in. Uh, uh, walking into it. So it, it was a, a pretty neat structure and Annie managed to find a job up in Duluth and we sort of made the, the old guy who lived there an offer he could refuse and he didn't. And so we bought the place and it, it was really great for us to kind of have a home base that wasn't right on the farm and made it possible for for. Annie and I, again, to kind of have a little separation from farm stuff and have things that are just ours, the two of us. And um, and that's, you know, as farmers, that's really, as young farmers, especially when one person isn't involved in in farming is is really necessary, I think. Um, So anyway, I, we didn't know what to do with that building but i've always i've always liked kind of messing around with with av equipment and and uh so i my brother was was living with us at that point and his work had just bought a a little digital projector that they used for like board meetings and stuff and he'd bring it home on the weekends and i bought a a new receiver and i cobbled together some like dvd player and bigger speakers and stuff like that and we made a little theater up there uh, the sc- that first screen we made out of Tyvek, you know, a house wrap and, you know, 16 foot two by four and th- screwed some wood onto it to sandwich it at the top and weighted it down on the bottom and it's nine feet high. And there you go. We got a movie theater. <laughs> and uh, then the, the following year I had, that was the first summer we lived there. And then the following year, um, a friend of mine was kind of an amateur filmmaker and she was making a movie and we're like, Oh, we'll do a movie premiere. And then 
these they all just decided Annie and these three friends of mine just decided we should have a film festival. So they, you know, put up a website and it was just amazing. We got 200 entries that first year. And so, you know, <laughs> we just got to watch, we just got to watch all this cool stuff. I mean, it's all, there's all this creativity out there that, that you never get to see unless you go to a festival because they're, some of them are three minutes long. Some of them are five minutes long. Some are 20 minutes long. And you know, there's not really a, an outlet for that stuff unless you're kind of doing the festival thing. And, and uh, so we got to sift through those and we just decided, oh, we're not going to do categories. We're just going to pick whatever we liked. And so we showed about 30 films and we just kept doing the same thing. There's so many people that showed up that first weekend. We were, we had a Friday night showing a Saturday afternoon and a Saturday night. And so I, on Saturday morning, I got up and I rigged up a second screen on the main floor just so that we'd have enough space for uh, all the people that showed up. And then I've, I've added a third screen and a lean to since then. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's farmer made, you know, it's the, the tech is not super high tech, although it's, it's not bad. The, the main screen now we salvaged out of a, a movie theater that was closing in Duluth. So that's like a, that's a legit screen, but the one in the lean to the, and the, the smaller one downstairs, those are both Tyvek still and they work great. <laughs> I love that. And I love that you're putting that kind of energy into just a completely off the wall, creative pursuit is what a fantastic break from the farm. It, it really is. You know, it, it really is. And it's, it's nice to, um, you know, farm tours and stuff are fine. I mean, they're, it's nice to do that stuff, but it's also really good to have a non, like a, a way for people to r- relate to, um, to the country and to kind of, uh, I don't know, to have activities that are sort of, it, agriculture adjacent, uh, I guess, rather than just, uh, you know, every time you go to the farm, it has to always be about just the farm stuff. Like it can be about other things and the, the farm can be a platform for other people's creative outlets that aren't just growing food. Um, and I, I really like that. We, we also did, uh, last spring, uh, just over a year ago, um, we had a, a friend of ours who's a musician um, did this really cool multimedia installation concert thing in the root cellar. It was after our last winter share delivery in April. So pretty much everything was cleaned out of there. We still had some bins stacked up in there, but you know, she had all these, she had probably 10 projectors set up down there and it's all, you know, uh, white steel liner panel walls that work it actually works pretty well to project against. And then we had this group from the Twin Cities come up that does really interesting kind of odd instrumental music. And I don't know, that sort of thing is just really fun um to it's it's good as farmers, I think, to kind of break ourselves out of just farm stuff all the time and, and have something that that is um related to what we're doing, but using our farms in a different way as, as outlets for other people's creativity. You know, my, my creativity is through, through agriculture, but I think the, the farm can sort of foster other forms of 
community and creativity that aren't directly connected to that. And that, that's something I really, I really value. And that's, that's something that, that I really value with um, the, the way Annie and I kind of relate to um, being participants in, in farming itself is, is that we can kind of bring some of that, those other aspects to it. I love that. Thank you, Jonicky. With that, we're going to stop here, take another quick break before we come back for our lightning round. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and as a potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. And I mean really great transplants year after year after year. Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort V mix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for just a little smell of the ocean. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put a consistent and excellent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com. Jonicky, what's your favorite tool on the farm? You know, Chris, you would you would think that after the number of your podcasts I've listened to, I I would have actually thought ahead about <laughs> some of this stuff. <laughs> but um, I I haven't really. But you know, I think. I might have to channel my dad a little bit here and I don't know if it's my favorite tool, but it's definitely the one that's gotten us out of the most scrapes uh, over the years. Probably my favorite tool is a pair of vice grips, you know, locking pliers. It's just amazing. The number of things that we've done with those <laughs> and, and you can carry them in your pocket and especially growing up on the farm when everything was old and broke all the time, but just having something handy that can clamp two things together and get you to, you know, get you down the road a little ways is huge. And, and probably the last time I used a pair of vice grips in a really important way was uh, I had a brake line go out of the delivery van and I was able to crimp it with a pair of vice grips and kind of limp <laughs> home without, uh, without losing brakes during rush hour. So that was, that was pretty handy. That's an awesome farmer <laughs> fix. I love it. Um, what's your favorite crop to grow? Oh boy. I think, I mean, I, I really love growing carrots because they're, um, because people love them so much. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where the difference between a carrot we grow and a carrot you get, get in the supermarket is just unbelievable. And the first time people taste it, they're just kind of blown away. It makes a lot of converts. So um, it's also super challenging because carrots can absorb an insane amount of labor or not, depending on how you're able to, to manage things. I, yeah, I think carrots. I, I also really love growing potatoes. There's something about the way – and carrots are fun when you use the, the, the harvester just because you, they add up so fast. But there's something about – looking back from the tractor when you harvest potatoes where they just sort of emerge out of the soil, you know, as the soil sifts through the, on the digger, 
I just love the way that looks. And I do almost all the work except for cutting seed of potatoes. And so it's, it's one of those things where um, sort of from a selfish perspective, uh, it gives, a, it gives me a lot of satisfaction because I, you know, other crops, other people are weeding at this point. Now other people are weeding or hoeing or doing a lot of the harvest work. And I'm still obviously not doing a lot of the harvest work, but to, to get the, to get the crop to grow is, and be weed free is that's, that's my deal. And if I don't do it right, you know, it's hard to have enough labor to weed a, a potato crop that I missed a cultivation on or didn't hill right. And it's, I don't know, there's something really satisfying just about seeing them come out of the, come out of the earth and almost everything that went in, into them was something that, that I did. And it's, I don't know. That's that's really enjoyable. But I think carrots I like more. That that wasn't very lightning, was it? No, that's okay though. But you know, we call it the lightning round, but it it sometimes takes a little time to warm up to the strike, you know? <laughs> What's your favorite farming book to read to your two and a half year old? Oh man. Uh he loves farming. He loves tractors a lot. Um my favorite farming book uh, what's the one he likes the most now? You know, the the one he, he likes the most right now is this old book from the 70s that we got that the library was getting rid of, and it's called The Milk Makers. <laughs> and I love reading it to him because he knows the names of the dairy cow breeds, which is such a bizarre thing love for a that. kid to know about. <laughs> um, you know, Ayrshire and, you know, all that sort of thing and he he knows him and he just I don't know it's really fun it's fun to read to him partly because I like that he's learning that stuff but also partly because the old 70s illustrations are are so awesome it kind of brings me back to my own childhood <laughs> that's great and what's your favorite film from the 2016 free range film festival oh man i you know i boy <laughs> I can't remember any of them. <laughs> I, it, it, it is it is so much fun doing that festival, but it turns into such a blur because I'm so tired already <laughs> at that point in the season. <laughs> um, I I really like there's one about uh, the world of competitive stone skipping that just had some really neat characters in it. These guys who are like trying to go for the Guinness book of world record for uh the most skips for skipping rocks um <laughs> that one yeah that one was really really great uh my favorite probably was this one called pickle which is this real short uh documentary that was just i mean there's no explanation to it it's just this interview with this couple who who saves animals and they have like this kind of little hobby farmy homestead thing but what's great about it is it's not like you can tell that they that they love doing it but they have sort of a twist to it that they know like these animals are all just going to die so you you hear about like 
how they found it. And the, the, the husband will kind of be like rolling his eyes that his wife found this thing and made them bring it home. But then, you know, he's got a soft spot too. So he'll be like, they talked about this possum they found that, and he's like, Oh my God, I can't believe she brought this home. And like, it, it, it was lame. It didn't, its back legs didn't work, but then he makes this whole little cart so it can carry itself around. <laughs> <laughs> And they're just, you know, just a sweet story about this couple that does kind of this goofy thing and they know it's it's silly and kind of ridiculous and they really kind of, uh, you know, it's just a nice short film about people who who are creative and, and interesting in their own way and uh, not shy about it. And that that was, I don't know, was super, super touching. Mm-hmm. I love it. Finally, John Key, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Um, uh, I'd probably just tell myself that it would all be okay and it wouldn't have made any difference at all. But, the, <laughs> like, uh, you know, I just, I, I put myself under a lot of pressure and it's not, you know, I don't need to, and it's all going to, everything has worked out great. And, uh, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I would have, honestly, there's, there's of course all sorts of little things that I would have changed, but, but, um, you know, uh, it's sort of the opposite of my first instinct would be to say that, it's okay that you're overthinking everything that it actually helped. <laughs> we, we bought our, our first brand new tractor in 2006 and I, I had myself so going around in circles trying to figure out what to get. And, but it was totally worth it. I mean, that all the time I spent doing that, like I love that tractor. It does exactly what I need it to do. Um, and, you know, the, the little things that I spent extra money on were definitely worth it. The little things that I didn't spend extra money on would not have been worth it. And I think that maybe that, that it's okay that the process that I use is the process I use. And if it seems ridiculous that you're indecisive and it takes too long to figure things out, it might seem that way, but it also probably is just the way that you operate. And, um, uh, so yeah, it, I don't know if that's clear at all, but I think that's what I would tell myself that, that, um, you decide things the way you decide them and you should just go with that because it, it, it works. <laughs> great. Makes complete sense. Jonicky. Thank you so much for being my guest today on the farmer to farmer podcast. You bet, Chris. I'm happy to do it. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 114 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Food Farm. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. 
Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.